The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1910, a woman named Ida Louise Crossley arrived at the Episcopal Church of the Transfiguration on 5th Avenue and 29th Street in New York City. It was the day of her wedding, and she was impressed by the large crowd that had assembled outside. Some friends quickly rushed her away to a hotel dining room, suggesting that this might be a better place for her to wait until the arrangements at the church were finalized. What they did not tell her was that there had been a mix-up. The church had accidentally been double-booked that day with both a funeral and a wedding scheduled to occur at the same time. The guests, when they arrived, were asked if they were there for the funeral or the wedding. Funeral-goers were rushed inside to pay their last respects. Wedding attendees were diverted to a nearby church garden. The wedding eventually proceeded without incident, but the funeral was affected as laughter and chatter floated into the church from the wedding guests outside, turning a dour occasion into one framed by excitement and happiness. It was a twist worthy of the beloved short story writer O. Henry, famous even today for his surprise endings, because, as it turns out, the man in the coffin that day was none other than O. Henry himself. It was his funeral. One suspects that he would have approved. All the more so because the lightness of his surprise twists sometimes concealed just how grim and gritty his stories were. He wrote about real people and real life in plain language, a language and sensibility consistent with his own life. He may have dressed up his stories with comic turns and neat surprises, but his life was tough and had twists of his own. He began writing as O. Henry in prison, and ended up one of the most successful writers in America. We still celebrate him today. Including with one of the more august literary institutions we have in America. The New York Review of Books began in 1963, giving you some context of of the age of some of these institutions. The National Book Award for Fiction began in 1950, which was two years after the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, which was first awarded in 1948. The New Yorker magazine dates back to 1925. The O. Henry Prize for Short Stories is older than all of those. It started in 1919 and ran continuously with a one-year break last year for retooling. Now it's back with guest editor Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and series editor Jenny Minton Quigley, who joined us earlier this year. She's back today to tell us about the retooling and the results as we dive into the life and legacy of O. Henry today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for joining us. O. Henry today, the man known as O. Henry, real name, William Sidney Porter, born on September 11th, 1862, died at the relatively young age of 47 in 1910. In the meantime, a lot of living and a lot of writing. If he's known today at all, I think it's for three things. And all three are related. He's known for short stories. All three things have that in common. Short stories with surprise twist endings. But specifically, these are the three things I think he's best known for today. The first, The Gift of the Magi. This is the short story. I this, It's beloved. I'm pretty sure it made it onto our list of greatest Christmas stories of all time that we did one year. The draft that Mike and I did. Maybe it was number one. No, actually... I don't think it could have topped the nativity scene if we counted that. Probably didn't top Scrooge either, at least not if I was picking. Anyway, that episode had the most mistakes that a History of Literature podcast episode has ever had. I corrected them subsequently, but a lot of people missed the correction. I still get emails about that episode once in a while. Mike might have been indulging in a bit of spicy eggnog 
before he joined us that day. I think, who knows? We record those things with Mike at midnight. He was probably dipping into some Christmas cheer. I don't know. I don't care. It was the season. Mike can indulge. Anyway, the gift of the Magi. That's the story of the poor young couple who are in love in New York City around the turn of the century. She sells her beautiful long hair for $20 in order to buy her husband a chain. A chain, that is, for his prized possession. His watch, which he's so proud of. Only to learn that he has sold the watch in order to buy her a Christmas gift, which is a set of combs to use with her beautiful long hair, which she no longer has. It's not quite as famous a story as Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, but it's up there. It's also been, like Scrooge, it's been adapted a million times and parodied a million more times. The Honeymooners took their shot at the Gift of the Magi, Sesame Street, The Muppets, Steve Martin in his book Cruel Shoes. More recently, Phineas and Ferb, Family Guy, and the list goes on and on. It's such a, it's such a, a well-used trope by now. It doesn't even necessarily have to be at Christmas. A lot of times you see in these parodies or these adaptations of it, it's just gifts. I give you this gift, you give me that gift, and we didn't realize our signals were crossed. But isn't it the thought that counts? Isn't it beautiful in some ways that we were both so giving we didn't need to get in order to realize how much we loved one another. It's hard to remember when we didn't know the ending to the story, the surprise twist, and yet it's still a fairly readable story. In fact, it's read aloud every year, or it was, at Pete's Tavern in New York City, where it's reputed that O. Henry wrote the story. He once lived across the street from Pete's Tavern. Mike and I, by the way, once held an impromptu meeting of the Literature Supporters Club, at Pete's Tavern. We've also met at the White Horse Tavern, Dylan Thomas's old haunt, and of course, the Algonquin. Okay, number two is another story O. Henry is famous for, also with a twist, also much admired and adapted and parodied, The Ransom of Red Chief, a story about kidnappers who steal a wealthy man's son, only to find that the kid is so unrelentingly mischievous and annoying that the father is reluctant to pay for his return, and in the end, the two men pay. They pay the father to take the kid back. These are classic short stories, the kind of story with the kind of clever ending that younger readers come to love, and in fact, they view these as the whole point of a short story in some ways. Why not have a big twist at the end? For grown-ups... Twists like that, endings like that, have become a bit of a cliché. And after Joyce, at least, stories in English don't really end like this anymore, not in serious literature. Life doesn't work so neatly. We don't need stories with the equivalent of a, of a trombone playing notes at the end of a melodrama. Womp, 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 womp. Just like we don't need villains twirling their mustaches. But that's not to say that O. Henry doesn't deserve his spot in the history of the short story, even if we now sort of use an O. Henry ending as a way of saying a little primitive, a little too pat, a little too neat, a little too pandering. O. Henry deserves a spot in our history of literature, first of all, because these were very popular stories. This was an era when stories came out each week. Before Netflix, of course, before the internet, but also before television and radio, really before cinema. Closer to Dickens's era than our own, families got these stories in the mail each week in publications like the Saturday Evening Post. And when they weren't sitting around staring at the fire or reading the Bible to one another or doing whatever they did, they had these stories to read. One can imagine families enjoying these stories with their whiz-bang endings and maybe running out to buy the collections of O. Henry stories, too. He was a bestseller. In his day, but there's another reason for resurrecting O. Henry a bit, which is that he was very good at what he did, even setting aside his supremacy as the crafter of endings that we no longer value quite as much, as a stylist, someone who wrote with local color, with witty narrators and fast-paced prose. He's up there with Ambrose Bierce and Jack London and even Mark Twain, and he loved 
New York, New York City, which to him was endlessly rich and endlessly fascinating. He was the opposite of a snob. We have a great example of a snob from his era, a guy named Ward McAllister, who took a look at the growing New York City and said, well, guess what? A lot of people here, but there are only 400 people worth noticing. These are the people, he said, who matter, who count. The Vanderbilts, the Astors, the Joneses, the Whitneys, you know the names. And he said, this guy McAllister said, if you go outside this list, this was his quote, if you go outside this list of 400, you will encounter people who either are uncomfortable in a ballroom or who make other people uncomfortable. What a snob. He wasn't the best list maker, as it turned out. He said, I'm going to print my list of 400, and he only had 265 names on it, and a bunch of them were dead. (laughs) I don't know about you, but the people I hang around would be somewhat uncomfortable at a ballroom if someone dead rolled in. But in any case, the point here is that O. Henry was deeply offended by this Mr. Ward McAllister and his list of 400, the only 400 people worth noticing, O. Henry entitled his book The Four Million and said, I've got a bigger range here. I notice others. All these people have stories, all four million of them. They're struggling and living and loving and dying. They're scraping by and trying to figure out how to buy each other Christmas presents and look at the love and humanity there among them. Look at them. Look at these people. Not just 400, 4 million. Look at them with warmth and good humor and compassion. And that is why we can talk about the third thing O. Henry is known for today, which is the prize in his name and not be embarrassed that we no longer value his nifty endings the way we once did. O. Henry was more than just his endings. He was a writer, capital W, and he looked for stories in people, real people, not just the ones who traveled in ballrooms, although there are stories there too. Thank you, Henry James, and thank you, Edith Wharton, for giving us those stories. But if we have a choice between 400 and 4 million, we'd be fools to limit ourselves to the smaller number. Literature is bigger than that, and so are we when we're at our best. Okay, so let's hear more about O. Henry, and then a special treat we will hear from the series editor of the O. Henry Prize for Short Stories, Jenny Minton Quigley who's here to talk about putting together the 2021 version, which is out now. A good Christmas gift, by the way. Put it on your list. Chances are the reader in your life won't have it yet. And a collection of short stories by 20 different authors is sure to have something for everyone. But before we get to O. Henry and the O. Henry Award, let's hear a listener email, or at least part of one. This comes to us from Liz in Hawaii. Hi, Jack. The arts and our loves save us writes Liz. She says, COVID isolation started when I had been living in a new place for nine months, and Hawaii is having a terrible surge of Delta. During this, I have read, made collages, written, and listened to music and podcasts to lighten my sorrow. I'm happy to say my mother turned 90 in June, so we had a small family party, and she had fun getting another tattoo on her head. Liz goes on to say that she cried when she listened to the History of Literature episode on Frederick Douglass learning to read because reading has been so central to her life. So, thank you, Liz, for this email. I want to go back to the sentence that kind of passed by. I'll paraphrase it as my 90-year-old mother got another tattoo on her head. It reminded me of those sentences, (laughs) made me think of those sentences where you change things by emphasizing a single word. Like the sentence might be, Mike gave Evie a book. And you can say, Mike gave Evie a book. Or, Mike gave Evie a book. Or, Mike gave Evie a book. Mike gave Evie a book. Or, Mike gave Evie a book. Five different meanings, all from the same five words as you emphasize one word over the other. I read the email kind of like that. My mind kept emphasizing different parts of the sentence. Your mother got a tattoo. Your 90-year-old mother got a tattoo. Your 90-year-old mother got a tattoo on her head. 
Your 90-year-old your ninety year old mother got another tattoo on her head? I am clearly missing the party by not living in Hawaii. If I've said that once, I've said it a thousand times. But I hear you on the Delta variant, and I know Hawaii is not alone in going through a pandemic resurgence. We are all with you wherever we are. Please do stay safe, and happy birthday to your mother. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with O. Henry, whose wildlife gusto for short fiction and continuing legacy make him a surprisingly enduring figure. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. William Sidney Porter was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. He went to school where his aunt was a teacher, and he worked in his uncle's drugstore. When he was 20 or so, he set out for Texas, hoping that the warm, dry climate would help him with a persistent cough he had. He found work as a ranch hand where he learned Spanish and German to help him uh, communicate with the immigrants around him and where he read classic literature at night to help while away the hours. He got a job as a cook for a while and a babysitter and another job at a drugstore. He was a licensed pharmacist. He played the guitar and the mandolin and sang in the church choir and was known for serenading young women around town. He eventually took a position in a land office drawing maps and then worked as a teller at a bank in Austin. We'll have more on that a lot more in a moment. He got married to a wealthy 17-year-old who had tuberculosis. This was against her parents' wishes. And the two of them had a son who died young and a daughter who lived, and Porter started writing humorous sketches. He was in his mid-twenties now, and he started up his own publication called The Rolling Stone, which flopped. Maybe that's a terrible name for a magazine. Who could ever imagine a magazine called Rolling Stone with that title ever amounting to anything? Anyway, the Houston Post snapped him up after that, and he drew cartoons for them, and he reported the news, and he wrote columns. In Houston, he liked to hang around hotel lobbies and get stories from the travelers and the other people hanging around. And then, in a bizarre twist, when he was 35 years old, his old job at the bank in Austin came back to haunt him. He had been a careless bookkeeper, and suddenly he was indicted for embezzlement. His father-in-law posted his bail, but Porter was terrified of the trial. And so when he was on his way to the courthouse, he took advantage of a change of trains. He, he took that as his opportunity to jump bail and flee to New Orleans, and from there, escape to Honduras. In Honduras, he wrote his first short story collection, which he called Cabbages and Kings, and he became friends with a notorious train robber. I mentioned the gift of the Magi and the ransom of Red Chief as two things he's famous for, but he also coined the phrase Banana Republic, which he was basing on what he saw around him in Honduras, and he popularized the character the Cisco Kid. Anyway, the plan was to have his family meet him in Honduras, where he was planning to, to stay now that he was a wanted felon. But 
His, alas, his wife, who had always been supportive of him, was dying of tuberculosis. Now he returned to Texas to see her and was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to five years in prison for the embezzlement. He served three years, got out early for good behavior. During those years, he was writing stories. And before he was uh, released, he, his prison stint was not too arduous, thanks to his experience as a druggist and maybe his reputation as a writer. He was treated pretty well. He worked in the prison hospital as the night druggist, and he was allowed to write stories. He took on the name O. Henry at this point, which may have been named after a prison guard. William Trevor thought so anyway. And big-time publications like McClure's were publishing his stories with no idea that they were being written by a prisoner. Was he a felon? Was he guilty? It's not clear. He later claimed he was not only innocent, but he would been set up to cover for the crimes of others. I don't think historians have settled on an answer to that. While he was awaiting trial, his wife had died, and when he was released, he reunited with his daughter, who was 11 now, and living with her grandparents in Pittsburgh. From there, the two of them moved to New York City. So Porter, now called O. Henry, could be closer to the publishing world that was gobbling up his stories. He was cranking them out now. This was 1902, and he really settled into his groove able to draw upon his life experience, his days on the ranch, his time in Honduras, his time in prison, all the people he'd met along the way, and also all the buzz and crackle of the New York City around him as it continued to grow and thrive. Five years later, he got married to his childhood sweetheart, but he didn't have many years left at this point. He was drinking a lot, and his writing started to suffer. His wife left him after only a year or two of marriage, and he died a year after that. He was 47. But he lives on. After his death, his friends got together and started up the O. Henry Prize for great American short stories. In 1919, the awards began, edited for several years by the formidable Blanche Colton Williams, who herself deserves an episode of the History of Literature. Blanche Colton Williams was the sort of person who went to a women's college in the South and so impressed her fellow colleagues that alumni of the college took up a collection to send her to graduate school to study literature. She landed at Columbia University, where she became a writer and a literary historian. She got the prize, the O. Henry Prize, off to a great start as she headed up the committee of uh, prize selectors. And the series, as I mentioned, continues to this day. So, speaking of which, let's take our final break and then return with Jenny Minton Quigley, who serves as the series editor for the O. Henry Prize Awards. We'll hear the nuts and bolts of gathering these stories, judging them, compiling them into a collection, and making them available to the world year after year after year. All that and more after this. Okay, joining me now is Jenny Minton Quigley, series editor for the O. Henry Prize winners for 2021. This year, the vaunted collection of prize-winning short stories was guest-edited by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and this was a relaunch with a couple of major changes that we will ask Jenny about. Jenny was here before to discuss her family's connection with Vladimir Nabokov and the classic 20th century novel Lolita. Jenny Minton Quigley, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. Okay, so here we go. The best short stories of 2021. But before we get to the stories, let's start with you. When and how did you get involved with the O. Henry Prize? I got involved in the O. Henry Prize back when I worked at Vintage Anchor, which mm -hmm. was in the early 2000s. Mm. Um, at that point, I was the in-house editor for the O. Henry series. And Larry Dark was the series editor. Uh, and then Laura Furman came on after him, and she had a wonderful run of about 17 years. Hmm. And then she wanted to move on onto on some new projects. And the team at Anchor took a year off after Laura resigned because they wanted to rethink the anthology. Mm -hmm. And then they invited me in to serve as the 10th series editor to help plan a relaunch. Right. Okay. So they made two major changes for the relaunch. 
let's start with works in translation. And in some ways, I'm not sure if I should ask you why they're being included now or why they weren't included before. But anyway, what's the thinking behind expanding the selection <laughs> to include translated stories? Well, it, it happened at our very first brainstorming meeting about the relaunch. Mm -hmm. And we were considering uh, what we could learn from the better known Best American Short Story series, but also how we could differentiate ourselves from it, mm. not just be its little sister. And one of the ideas we had to, was to move away from specifically American stories. At the time, it was a couple of years ago and Trump was still in office, President Trump, but I don't think we were especially feeling proud about being American mm. and we wanted to open our minds to literature around the world and, and the literature that writers had originally imagined in their own language. Right. And, and you're right. But the second we decided to do it, we thought, why, why haven't we done this earlier? Well, I can tell you that in preparation for this, I went back and looked at the very first O. Henry short story collection, prize-winning short story collection, in 1919. And the editor wrote a wonderful introduction there. Her name was uh, Blanche Colton Williams. And she noted in her introduction that the unfortunate prohibition on non-Americans had led to at least three worthy stories that they were unable to consider. Oh, no way. So a long time in coming, but finally we got there. <laughs> right, right. And, and I wonder why then they hadn't opened their minds from day one. I wonder. Someone, you know, one of the problems is, I guess one of the problems is, Jack, that someone would have to translate them. So Granta, for example, um, does mm. wonderful, publishes wonderful translations yeah, um, online right. and, in, and in print that, that I've found both, both years. Um, I've read some wonderful, wonderful stories in Granta, but O. Henry Prize series doesn't have the budget to be translating right. stories to ourselves. So we, we need to rely on on websites and journals that are that are translating. Right. And I think it was a little bit different. I may have misled you on when I just described that, because I think what she was talking about were stories that were written in English and had been published in the magazines in America, but had been written by non-Americans. Oh, so they wouldn't even at the start publish yeah. by um, people. That's interesting. Yeah. So I think uh, I think one of them was written by someone who was French, and and you know if they were born in another country or if they were uh, a citizen of another country, then they would not be considered. But that clearly hasn't been the case because Alice Monroe is no, no. won plenty, and William Trevor, and there have been uh, plenty of of winners in the past who wrote in English, right. but who. Uh, we're not Americans. And this year we have um, Sally Rooney mm. and we have Alice Jolie. We have a, a few writers who are not American, but who are writing in English. Yeah. As and well I, as translations from the Danish and the Spanish. And Right. I guess it kind of begs the question of, like you were saying, a lot of these maybe had been written a few years ago. So the stories are a little bit older and it takes a couple of years before they get translated. Most of them probably aren't being published for the very first time in the, in an American magazine in English. Right. Which, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Not sure that that matters, but yeah. <laughs> no, but it is interesting. Yeah. You know, um, because they might be published, uh, like translated a whole collection, for example, and then published yeah, as a book. Exactly. You know, so it's not I, I like I think that's the case. Yeah, I, I think that's the case with Karina Sands Borgo's The Story Scissors. I think she's working on a whole, you know, there's a whole collection in, in Spanish that then gets translated. Right. Okay, so let's but talk I'm about... Not, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to learn the answer to that before next year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the second major change, which is you have a guest editor, which is not something that the O. Henry Prize has done before. So tell us how that came about. That came about... It, you know, in addition to having the uh, a famous name to, to help mm -hmm. us get the word out, yeah. um, we were looking for the particular writer's talent and taste, sort of a sensibility they would bring to the project. We were looking for an international writer to, to build on what you just said about how, how seriously we're taking the translations. We wanted someone with international taste um, mm. and international writer to to be the judge and it certainly has made my job easier having Chimamanda's vision to guide me in screening stories you know she has a, a singular artistic vision 
to guide the process from beginning to end. And and I think it also has made the book a more satisfying read because mm. it feels like a book of harmonious voices. Yeah. You know, it's not just this eclectic mix of someone's definition of best of. It's it's Chimamanda's vision of short fiction. And I, and I think in the case of um, Chimamanda in particular, who Luann Walther at Anchor, um, she actually is the one who, who thought of Chimamanda, Ngozi Adichie, and... Um, in, in the case of her, it's it's also, you know, no one really cares the stories that I'm recommending necessarily. But but Tim Amanda, a, a renowned writer throughout the world whose whose memoir of Obama she reviewed, you know, I think people are interested, both re- readers and writers, in what she considers the best contemporary short fiction. Right. So I think it helps. I think the idea of having a guest editor and someone who changes so that the book also changes mm-hmm. as a work of art each year. I, I, I think it's one that I hope will be, will be here to stay. It's, it's made my work so much fun. Yeah. And it, it's great because authors are going to bring, you know, the guest editors will bring different tastes and different. Uh, the, the first editor that I was reading she mentioned, you know, that she herself had a strong preference for detective stories. And I'm sure you will have guest editors who have, you know, a, a fondness for science fiction or who just have a, a little bit of a different flavor for types of stories that will give each edition kind of its own personality and its own feel. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm already seeing it, Jack. So, mm. so to Amanda, um, you know, the very first conversation I had with her, she was looking for stories that had heart, that had a kind of wisdom, that were genuine, that were not gimmicky. And and Valeria Luiselli, who will be our next editor for 2022, she loves experimental fiction. So already when I'm reading stories, I'm I'm pulling different, screening different ones just, just based on their criteria. Right. Right? Which yeah. will lead to, to different, very different books, I think. So tell us about where you sit in the process. How do you intake the stories? Are they are you going out to different uh, publications and and websites and and reading them, or are they nominated, or how do they make their way into your pile? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> so you're of sort above. of a vacuum uh, to to try to scoop up as much as you can. Yes. So, so um, many literary magazines and online literary websites submit their stories to me. Um, there's Jenny at ohenryprizewinners.com. And we, we ask them not to submit just their favorites, but to submit everything in an issue mm-hmm. so that we can be the judge. And then I've also tracked down a lot of stories in journals myself. Mm. The, uh, Emma Hine, who's at the Community of Literary Magazines and Presses, she reached out to me and updated our our submission page, our guidelines on on their website, and the Penguin Random House has updated their site. So more, more and more are, are coming in, and then I'm finding them. I, I have subscriptions to Gulf Coast, and I, I read Catapult and Electric Lid and all, you know, all the, the Yale Review, Guernica. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many of them. And then I guess moving forward, I even discovered, Jack, a story that I loved on the Harper's Bazaar UK site website last year. But of course, we right now say we consider stories that are distributed in North America. But the website idea changes it because I can find stories right. published everywhere. And if that story had made it through, I think we already would have changed our guidelines but diana tesdell who's the in-house anchor editor she said to me just just see how much you can read right so so but it, but at a certain point i would i would love to open it up to all websites i guess in english yeah she ends up choosing the book ends up having 20 stories and i was wondering if there's any shaping that has to be done for example, I could imagine if all of the stories were extremely short, it might be tough to fill a volume, or if all of them were extremely long, uh, it might be tough. This is something that also the first editor had kind of wrestled with, and she said, you know, if we just went with the longest stories that were nominated, we would have only had room to include half as many stories as we did. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Does it just kind of, the law of averages just kind of shakes out? This year it did. Yeah. 
this year it did. Uh, Scissors is, is just a few pages. Brown Girls is just a few pages. And then um, the Joan Silver story is quite long. Mm-hmm. Emma Klein's story is quite long. I, you know, maybe Tim Amanda put some thought into that. Right. I, because, because I think it, it came out. Uh, um, let me see. I have a galley here w- with all the publications submitted and the winners writing about, you know, how they wrote their craft and it comes out to 368 pages, which is perfect. Yeah, so, right. but, but I, but I can't say that, that I, I would say, maybe Chimamanda put some thought into that. To, to me, it's just how it, how it shook out. Interesting. So there's, uh, <laughs> when you mentioned that she liked stories that have heart and that weren't too gimmicky, I wanted to give you a few quotes from this first edition of the O. Henry Prize, the, the introduction that I was reading. So the editor complained She said, too frequently, there is no story, a series of episodes strung together, a sketch, an essay, stories that are too long, that start with the wrong tone, or that have an obvious happy ending that the author has catered to magazine needs. So, (laughs) and then she said, what we did like was uh, originality, excellence in organization of plot incidents, skill in characterization, and power in moving emotions. So... Sounds like we kind of have the same criteria. Yeah, 100 years later, we're still looking for the same things. (laughs) But absolutely. This is the paragraph that I absolutely loved, where there was apparently some uh, critics who had said, you know, you should really choose for the best style. You should really be aiming, you know, instead of best story, this should be the best written story or the best style. And she said, the committee were not insensible to style. But expert phrasing, glowing appreciation of words, and exquisite sense of values, the texture of the story fabric, all dropped into the abyss of the unimportant after the material they incorporated had been judged. And then she had this sentence, which is, which is so fantastic. No man brings home beefsteak in silk or sells figs as thistles. <laughs> So Blanche Colton Williams was not one you could uh, try to snow with a you know an, an ornate prose style. She was somebody looking for the the heart of the story. <laughs> and what were the stories like that she picked? So here's a few that were interesting. There's one Kitchen Gods was by a doctor of medicine who spent five years treating the women of China. Porcelain cups was about a genealogist who becomes interested in the Elizabethan age and the life of Christopher Marlowe. And the Lebany Kiss was by a woman from Rome who spends part of her year living with gypsies. (laughs) (laughs) So they were quite a... uh, Quite an interesting range. And then there was this really interesting thing that they had to wrestle with, which was they all agreed on what a short story was, but then they all, uh, there were five of five editors on the committee. They all thought that the best literature in brief form was by a man named Steele, and it was called Contact. But three of them thought it was a short story, and two of them declared it an article because it was kind of nonfiction. It was written by the author after a personal visit to the North Sea Fleet. And so they, she put the question to the publishers. And the editor of Harper's wrote back and said, it is a faithful portrayal of the work done by our destroyers and therefore falls under the category of articles. So they said, (laughs) basically, you know, nice that you want to award it this prize, but we don't consider it a short story. So we're taking it off of your, uh, we're unnominating it from you. <laughs> and then, wow, so then more they, like narrative nonfiction. Or yeah, fiction. exactly. So then they asked uh, the author and he said, I am not quite sure what to say, which is kind of funny because he's probably thinking, I'd love to win this prize. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, you know, the piece of which you speak was in a sense drawn from life. It was made up of a number of impressions gained when I was at sea. Uh, the characters are elaborations of real characters. So he was basically, you know, he was kind of saying it's accurate, but it's it's fictional. It's fiction-ish. So the, he uh, unfortunately did not win. Uh, they did not include it because of his, his editors, but it, it would have won, apparently. 
Right. And it's interesting because, you know, in the, just last year, the New Yorker published the, the story, a story by Ernest Hemingway mm. that had been previously unpublished in which he calls himself Ernest. You know, it, it, it's like he, he, he really didn't go back and fictionalize it all. He didn't, it, mm. he, he left it in, in what very well might have been narrative nonfiction. Right. But but that one was never published until now. And then as fiction. So so I guess now it might be left these days. It might sort of be left to the author to decide. Yeah. Are there any other are there any sort of trends or or broad statements you can make? You must be looking at hundreds, if if not more than that, uh, of short stories and, and short fiction. Is there anything that you discern in today's fictional world? Um, I guess. One idea that that did come to me from all my reading is that a a lot of young writers who are publishing in literary journals write a a lot of coming of age stories. Mm. It's something that Chimamanda was not particularly interested in the best of collection. And I had to remind myself sometimes for me as an editor that the thrill is in the discovery of an unknown gem in an unknown place. And I had to remind myself a little bit that this wasn't a debut collection. Pen America does this amazing debut, best of um, debut stories. Mm. But um, it did occur to me that, that O. Henry could have a young adult collection and and we would find enough fabulous stories every year. It's just whether the writers would want to be considered categorized as YA. Yeah especially if they're up and coming, but there were, but I, I, you know, I certainly have read in the past couple of years, a lot of young adult, as, as far as the stories that are coming out today, it, it strikes me that I, I don't know if this has always been the case, but the best stories are really this meeting of poetry and, and novels that, mm. that they're more of a moment in time and a feeling they give you every single story that one that, that Chimamanda picked all 20 sort of give you this chill it by, by the time you finish and not a melodramatic, Oh, Henry ending chill, mm-hmm. uh, just a feeling that they've been going for. And that feels more like poetry to me. But of course, they're written in a style that's more accessible, that's more novelistic. Mm. You know, I, I don't know if that's always I don't think that has always been been uh, true of the short story. But but right now, it really feels like a meeting place of, of those two forms. Right. Right. So it's when you say novelistic, you mean it's compressed enough that it it sort of can span uh, a stretch of time or it, it can can include multiple characters or is is that what you I mean, mean? Sort of a narrative? I, mean the, I sort of mean the style of writing. So oh, that right. if a novel is trying to create a world, these stories are, are not necessarily they're they're creating more of a moment. You know, it's a moment in a trail in a mobile hospital trailer in upstate New York. It's, it's a moment in a camp in, in China in the seventies. It's a, it's more of a moment and you get a feeling from it mm-hmm. than recreating the whole world of it, which would be novelistic, but it, but they're written in a more accessible, beautiful, but more accessible language than some of poetry. Mm, it's, right. I, I see it right. Sort of as, as a, a melding, I I've been struck by how few, you know, th- there are certainly the stories in, in Queens and, and, and set in different places in America. There are also more, more stories outlining different parts of the world for us than ever before. Right. Did you ever find yourself thinking what we really could use are stories that, that do X or, or that are about Y? No, I don't think so. This year I was sure that there would be so many pandemic stories, mm. but so far there's, there's only been a few. Yeah. No, I didn't find myself missing anything. I remember reading once that, uh, John Cheever was saying that he would read short stories and I don't know if he was the judge of a, a prize or if he was just talking about fiction in general that he read other than his own. And, and he kept finding himself saying, what color is the sky? What, what does the sky look like? That he felt like nobody was taking the time to talk about their surroundings and, and the natural world, that it was all interior and all... I think there was probably a lot of metafiction also at the time that he was probably uh, reacting against, that it was probably a lot of Donald Barthelme or John Barth, you know, that kind of fiction. Maybe that was part of it. But uh, he just, he would say, you know, I, I keep throwing these books down saying, what color is the sky? 
<laughs> well, and, and like the Raymond Carver, there were very few um, stories that I've been reading. There are very few in that Raymond Carver style that I actually love, but but which is almost all dialogue. Yeah, and very terse. There, and, very, yeah. Right, right. There's very few like that now. Mo- most people are giving you the sky. And, and my own pet peeve is that I need to know when it, this, a story takes place in time. Mm. That, that, that seems to be more than... Um, I have a couple of assistants who read with me and, and more than it bothers them. If I can't figure out, am I in the 1970s? Am I in 2050? It, right. it, it, to me, that the moment that I'm in getting my bearing there is, is super important for some reason. Right. So I know the O. Henry Prize used to choose one story as first prize among the 20, and it doesn't look like you're doing that anymore. But I was wondering if there are a few that you wanted to highlight for us just to give us a flavor of some of the ones that stood out for you this year. Oh, gosh. Uh, I love them all. (laughs) Which child do you like the best? (laughs) (laughs) But that's not even the reason. The, the, The real reason is that what surprised me about this project since I've taken it on is how beautiful of a book. Mm. Just taking these stars and sort of gathering them together and then having this glimmering piece of art that's new, that, that it's not just a prize, it's a book. I think that's the part that, that having a guest editor has helped to do and sort of taking away one, you know, by the end, uh, before we relaunched, there were, I think, three jurors and each juror would choose their favorite story. So then you had three different sensibilities, selecting three different stories as the gems of the gems. I don't know. I I like this idea better of, as you said earlier, some stories are short, some are long, some are set in the U.S., some are set in in Africa. And yet, as a cohesive whole, they make this beautiful book. Mm. You know, it's not just a prize, it's a book we're publishing. Yeah. I have to think that that it would be the sort of book that O. Henry, who William Porter was his real name, and 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 you'll tell us all about him, but he was a popular writer. He he wrote every week. He turned out a story for the Saturday Evening Post or the New York World magazine Sunday. I, I have to think that it's a book that he too would have appreciated. I hope so. Right. A book that's worth not just getting because it's it grants people an award, but because it's a book that you want to hold in your hand and have on your shelf and read. Right. For the reading experience. Exactly. Mm. And and there's other things we do that that make it a helpful book. You know, for writers, there's a whole list of hundreds and hundreds. This took me hours and hours to update the publications that, that you can submit to and how. Yeah. If you're a writer and, and we finally eliminated Playboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Devastatingly. <laughs> yeah. In house, you know, we included two stories from from Tin House that closed its doors. Oh, right. Unfortunately, but yeah. but two beautiful stories. But Tin House and Glimmer Train, unfortunately, folded. But so did Playboy. And that one's OK. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let me say just sort of in conclusion here, I went back 20 years and looked at the 2001 O. Henry collection and the names on that list, uh, George Saunders, Dale Peck, Andrea Barrett, Louise Erdrich, Alice Monroe, Antonia Nelson, Joyce Carol Oates, T.C. Boyle, Ron Carlson. I mean, it's like a who's who of that era. And I'm expecting that 20 years from now, the names in in this year's book will be similarly familiar. It's a wonderful thing for for those of us who don't have a chance to read a lot of literary magazines or keep up. It's it's a wonderful way for us to get a sense of what's out there and, and experience some of the great fiction that's being written. Right. I think we have at least three writers who this is their, their first published, it's not their first published story, you know, their, their first book is coming out or maybe mm. even four. Mm-hmm. And that's, Super exciting to me. Yeah. And then, of course, those writers, you know, Tessa Hadley and, and David Means were at the top of their game, Emma Klein as well. Yeah. But, but to see them all and to read them all in one book, um, I do hope that the hope is that it's a great reading experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, the book is The Best Short Stories 2021, the O. Henry Prize winners, guest edited by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and series edited by our guest. Jenny Minton Quigley. Jenny Minton Quigley, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. Okay, 
that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Jenny Minton Quigley for joining me. I told you people this is a great idea for a gift, perfect for that college student in your life who's maybe immersed in biochem and calculus and astrophysics and whatever they're learning these days. 20 great short stories to help them decompress during the Christmas break. All fresh, all new, all carefully selected, and all presented to us like ornamental combs and platinum watch chains. Is it too early to think about Christmas? No, I don't think so. Put this one on your list. Speaking of Christmas, I'd like to do something special this year for the holidays. I thought maybe we could have some old favorites stop by for repeat visits. If you have a guest you'd like me to invite back on the show, please let me know. I'd love to check in with some of my old friends. It's easier for me to beg them to come back if I can say, hey, the listeners are demanding it. It's also not too early to start thinking about Halloween. We're lining up our October lineup. We'll have a look at the art and science of mystery and a little Harry Potter cameo. And we'll have some Mary Wollstonecraft. Hopefully that's another tie-in given the Mary Shelley connection. Oh, and some others besides. You all know that October is my favorite month. Well, it is approaching. It's almost here. Lots to look forward to. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.